Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Future Perfect Talks. Um, this edition is about new worlds and the world building imagination with two of the most exciting game developers in the world right now, Oscar Storberry and Greg Kithriotis, I think I say your name. You can correct yeah, it in one fine. second. Um, and um, uh, what I'd like you to do is to, is to present yourselves um, briefly um, and then we can kind of, you know, jump out of the plane and pull the ripcord and, and sort of explore all the themes. And maybe start with you, um, Greg. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Greg Kithriotis. Uh, I'm a game designer, I guess. Uh, my, But I come from a background having studied architecture, so that kind of heavily influences the work I do. Um, and we just, I work with uh, my partner, Daniel Feinberg, uh, my business partner, and uh, we work at Shedworks, and we just released a game called Sable um, last week. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. Brilliant. Oscar? Uh, I'm also a video game developer, I guess. Uh, I focus in uh, procedural generation, and uh, I've done the game called Bad North, and recently the game called Townscaper, which is like more of a kind of sandbox toy than a game where you just build beautiful cities and my algorithms make sure they always look nice. Hmm. Brilliant. Um, well, firstly, congrats to, to you, Greg, for the launch of Sable. Uh, many years of work has gone into it and the, and the feedback, as far as I can see on Twitter and in the reviews, has been incredibly positive and exciting. I, as, a, as a player of the game, I'm super excited myself, so it's, it's wonderful. And congrats to you, Oscar, for, I think, if I, I'm not sure if it's happened yet, but it's upcoming, which is the, the mobile release of Townscaper. Is that right? Yeah, the mobile is end of the month, I think. And the, right. But the Switch release was pretty recent, so you can congratulate me on that. Yeah, well, thank you for reminding me to congratulate you. I, I shall congratulate you on the Switch release. I will also congratulate you on the proliferation of, of, um, of uh, knockoffs coming out from China in the various, well, app stores. Congratulations on being sufficiently popular to be, you know, the target of um, theft. Um, thank you. That's, that's fantastic. But that happened with Bad North as well. But China is, uh, I think, my biggest market for Townscaper, actually. It, it just beats the US. So that's where I... So a real Townscaper or a fake Townscaper? Or maybe you don't have metrics on the fake Townscaper? I don't have metrics on the fake Townscaper. So the real, yes. <laughs> okay, so here's a question, right? Because it was very interesting to note that both of you sort of said you're sort of a game designer. So start in a way from first principles. How do you get, to, What? why are you doing what you're doing? And how would you describe it in, in, in pure abstraction without having to refer to any specific industry or practice or product to sell? Why are you doing what you're doing? And what do you think it is in, in, this, in this purest form? Let's start with you, Oscar. I mean, I sort of hesitated just because I am a game designer, but I'm quite a bit more than a game designer, as I'm sure Greg is as well. But I also do a lot of the programming, and obviously since I, I work solo on some of my projects. Um, but I mean, I, I, professionally, I am fundamentally a game developer in that the things I develop, they are games, and I put them on Steam and other platforms where people buy games. And yeah, people buy them as games. Though, of course, Townscaper is not very game-like in many ways. Uh, but fundamentally, what I enjoy doing is uh, exploring interesting algorithms, and that's mostly procedural algorithms to create good-looking, 
interesting environments. Uh, a lot of it comes down to experimenting with kind of uh, merging the procedural, so the more sort of logical and mathematical aspects with the more handcrafted aspects and get kind of a synthesis where that looks very good and where people can't really judge which part are procedurally generated and which part have been um, artistically designed, sort of. Mm. Well, just before you jump in, Greg, I mean, would you say, Oscar, that um, would you say that you are more artist coder or game developer in terms of that kind of locus of, of main interest and competency? I think artist, and I was an artist before I became these other things. I became mm. a game developer because I was, I, I enjoyed, it, like in school, I enjoyed art and I enjoyed math. And mm -hmm. I figured game is one of the places where you can combine these things. Um, yeah. And I learned to program fundamentally to uh, be able to like automate some of the things I was, because when I do art, when I, I kind of noticed that a lot of things I do in was kind of repetitive. And then I figured, hmm, there's some rules to how this is done. Maybe I could automate this. Mm. And as I did that more and more, that's kind of how I got into programming. Mm. Greg. Yeah, hi. <laughs> um, I guess my hesitation is more just, uh, maybe you'd call it imposter syndrome. I don't know, but... Um, I, yeah, I, like I studied architecture. I have no formal training in game development or game design. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So everything I've done has been informal, self, self-driven or, uh, yeah. And, and I guess what we do as a company, uh, when, as an indie developer, you do so much that isn't game development as well as is game development. Um, you know, you, you run a business, you manage people, you do marketing and, press and etc um you know that uh sometimes i just feel it's it's a difficult descriptor to use but um you know with in terms of fitting into the industry uh i've never had a job working uh for someone else as a game designer um so it always feels a bit strange to to say it because it's just a job title i invented for myself at this point and uh mm. has has kind of have carried on with that but yeah. i guess that's how a lot of people how it goes for a lot of people in a lot of jobs. So I mean, just for just for clarity, just that in the video game industry, game designer tends to mean something quite specific and mm -hmm. somewhat different to how people outside the industry would guess that designer, like would guess that the guy name that the word designer means. So kind of what if you if you tell someone outside the industry that you're a game designer, they might get one picture, but if you tell people inside, they get much more specific and slightly different picture. What is that specific picture? Um, so a game designer barely like doesn't really do any art or mm -hmm. uh, any graphical things or very little mm -hmm. of that. But what they do is they design kind of the asp the abstract rules of the game. Yeah, the game the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, whereas obviously in most other professions, designer is someone who, do, who does like graphical things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, so I mean, well, I was going to say. Really, yeah, I do a bit of that, but also I do a bit of art and I do a bit of level design and UI design and mm. business. And yeah, so it a game developer, but then I feel weird saying game developer because I do no programming myself. Um, I couldn't make a game from scratch myself. Uh, so I'm in a weird space where I, I guess my title is on the project creative director. Um, 
because that's mm. kind of all I took on on this project. But um, but even that feels strangely, yeah, I don't know. Nothing feels like it quite fits. Uh, does 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 Daniel do the the coding? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so there's there's something interesting, which I mean, I think I, should, I hadn't planned to go into it as much as I think we we've already can. I mean, you you both of you are sort of dancing around a little bit, maybe two things, which is very interesting to see, which is what is a game developer nowadays, right? Because I noticed that you haven't called yourselves in the X, you just whatever you are, right? And, I, and I'll ask a question about that one second. But also, you're essentially, although you've both said you're game developers with a little bit of kind of prodding, um, actually, you've developed things that aren't really like games, right? The whole gameplay mechanic of, of, of your respective products right now is quite unique in a way. I mean, I'm not really enough into gaming to know exactly how many examples are of things that are like it, but I do think it's very interesting. So the first question is, um, do you think that the role of the game developer is inherently changing anyway? Right? Do you think that how game development happens is is changing and that you are leading it, or are you just one of many indie game developers that's always going to be heterogeneous or heterodox or in its own space, and the big you know kind of game devs are going to just kind, of, kind of rumble on? Do you think that there's a thing happening whereby game development is 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 evolving as an industry? I, I'd go mostly with the what was the second option? So that like there's always going to be obscure, interesting indie devs doing experimental things, but then mm. video game development is also a huge um, kind of yeah industry which you know does things according to its own rules and makes games that look like other games and stuff like that. So there's you know it's a huge industry. There's there's room for all kinds, and there's also room to move between these uh, kind of two sectors as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, putting putting those sorts of definitions in such clean ways, I don't think really works as well when you work in the sort of spaces that we work. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe some people would think uh, Sable is barely a video game and some people, I think, came into it surprised at how much of a video game it is. And right. uh, I think it just depends what perspective you're, you're coming at it yeah. from. Um, yeah. And I... I mean, Townscaper is maybe more pushing the bounds of what that means um, in a more uh, direct way. Um, and but I think the thing about the games industry as well is it's so technologically it's so reliant on techno like the state of technology at the time um, that yeah I, I think you know. That's why I quite like the term designer because I feel like design is is this like infusion of art and art and just technology sometimes maybe maybe I don't I don't know exactly it's difficult to define it's difficult to define and uh, I do struggle mm. with it but yeah in terms of like the the actual gameplay and the game mechanics I mean Greg did you did you start by setting out to do something that was experientially it was more focused on kind of experience and, and adventure and kind of, you know, just kind of moving around or um, was it moving around like, like at voyaging um, or did that just kind of grow on you as, as the game, as the game kind of unfolded? No, I mean, the idea came really early uh, it, it, and it came, I wouldn't say fully formed, but, you know, fairly formed. And uh, the first prototype we did was 
it was made in two hours using uh, assets from the Unity Asset Store um, mm. before a pub night, a London Indies pub night. And um, mm. we put it together and there was just a, a two, two kilometer by two kilometer cube of sand dunes and then mm. another giant cube in the distance and mm. a hover car asset and you could just drive out to it. And there was something about that kind of experience uh, that for some reason was extremely evocative and engaging uh, in a way mm. that I think we didn't expect, but we, we carried through the entire mm. time. Um, so it was always designed around that experience, the experience of exploration, of kind mm. of wanderlust, of, of mm. and yeah, trying to protect that as a core and everything else was built to, to kind of help facilitate that emotion and that emotional experience. Kind of, kind of what I'm driving at, right? Because I'm going to kind of sort of ask the same question to Oscar in a second is, 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 is there whether, you know, kind of consciously or subliminally an intention to move away from games that you win? And a kind of point scoring competitive is that maybe I'm just like layering a whole narrative in here that's irrelevant. But is there was there some sense of that going on? I think uh, that's. Um, so was that for me, Greg? That was for Greg actually, because I'm going to because just to finish on Greg, Greg's kind of discovery, sort of unfolding yeah. of, the, of the background to the game, and then I'll, then I'll ask you the same question, Oscar. Well, uh, I wouldn't say it was an explicit goal because you know we do have some of that going on with the. We have like money that you can get in the game, and you buy part, buy bike parts, and make progression in that sense. So yeah. there is an element of that, but there's no like high score or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that was important because we tried to make a very a kind of relaxing experience in a lot of ways. And I think that adds attention immediately when you start to try to quantify the actions of players, uh, and it, it kind of removes it from the experience that we were trying to create. Um, but you know, that ties into the explicit emotions that we were trying to engage with. Like some games are very good at engaging that more competitive side of your brain. Um, whereas the side that we wanted to engage more with was that feeling of curiosity. Um, mm -hmm. and that was our but focus. You, but, but you're not doing that as like a polemic or a, or a kind of subliminal statement about society that we should be having more meditative and less competitive games. Not consciously, um, okay. maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. in some ways, yes, but I wouldn't say it was some dogmatic uh, kind of philosophy that uh, we were yeah. trying to in, push on to other people. I mean, in a way, that would be the antithesis of that philosophy. But, um, but you know, we, we wanted to just create something that, that we cared about, and I think it was that simple. I don't think there was much more to it. Um, than that. And you, and Oscar, I mean, when you, so because because you you sneak in to the description of Townscape quite often, the idea that it's kind of a toy. Um, but what do you mean by that? I mean, what, why do you why do you sort of move away from because because you say that you're a game developer? That I mean that you do clarify under duress. But then you you describe Townscape as a toy. What is it? What is your implication in saying that? I kind of have a sense of what it means practically. But why do you say that? Well. Um... So I say that it's a toy because it, a game usually has a goal uh, or some or some scorekeeping, something like a fail state and a win state, and Townscaper doesn't have any of that. So whereas a toy is something that you play with and you make up your own rules around. Uh, so in that way, Townscaper is a toy. But the way the reason I say I'm a game developer is basically because I use the same toolkit as. Uh, sure. 
a game developer and you know i i hang out with game developers i used to work at a mm. normal video game company and stuff like that mm. so uh, and i released the the toy of townscaper as well on video mm. game platforms mm. i mean no so i'm not i'm not trying to imply that your 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 the townscaper is not a game i'm just trying to I'm trying to get to the idea that it, well i'm trying to i'm trying to sort of interrogating the same point that i was sort of probing greg on which is are you doing this consciously or subliminally to encourage people to do things and play in a way that is less competitive and goal oriented and more exploratory and you know, yes yeah with yes inside townscaper specifically so i don't think it's a, a comment on sort of the the larger idea of what i want people to play or enjoy but yeah. I, th I think very similar to what, what greg talked about it was about like having some kind of core idea and core feeling and then thinking about how do i cater to that feeling so greg mm -hmm. talked about this first sensation of riding the hover bike through the mm -hmm. uh sand dunes to some object in the distance and how that felt amazing and then figuring out okay how does he build a whole game around that and try and retain and protect that feeling and with townscaper mm -hmm. it's it's the same but it's a different feeling it's mm -hmm. it, it's see me seeing what, when i build buildings and the algorithms like construction buildings so like i like the feeling of that and then figuring out okay how do i create a whole package around that that really retains this feeling and i tried to think about you know is there a way i could put some kind of game game on top of this you know mm -hmm. to keep score to to give the player an objective or something but mm -hmm. when i kept thinking about that the because as soon as you add th uh, like goals to the player, the people start to play towards those goals, and that's that's mm -hmm. fine in games that you know where, where that's interesting. But if I basically if I was going to put a good game on top of Townscaper, it would probably have mm -hmm. to be some pretty advanced, intense city building game or something like that. Yeah. And those, I mean, those are a pain to develop in and of, or you know, that's a huge piece of work yeah, to develop one sure. of those things yeah, in yeah. and of itself. And then I wasn't even certain that I could do it well. So then I figured, okay, I enjoyed this thing. And when I add other things on top of it, uh, you know, I, I actually detract some enjoyment from from the core. Yeah. So let's mm -hmm. just keep the core and not add anything mm -hmm. else to it. Well, so thank you for that. What kind of what I'm driving at, and and you have you have kind of resisted my probing, both of you masterfully, is this idea that society wants and developers might be creating things that are not compet competition or outcome oriented, and and. And I'm just going to reflect on this myself, and then we'll kind of move on because, they, well, I mean, you can comment on it, but just because there's there's a lot of money, for example, going into meditation apps. All right, I mean, it's just hundreds of millions of dollars, and everyone's suddenly obsessed about meditation and calmness and measuring their calmness and whatnot. In terms, of, it seems to me, right? I would be on. I mean, I don't think I think no one's measuring this, but I would be fascinated if somebody did measure it. I suspect that the meditative outcomes of playing Townscaper and playing Sable are probably more effective than doing a meditation app, particularly over time, right? Where your, you know, your returns and your, you know, your kind of going into the flow state and so forth kind of just increases over time because actually you're inherently drawn to the environment, whereas meditation feels like a chore. And and I and I just I'm just reflecting on that really. I mean I, I think it's it's an interesting debate around why people want meditation and calming things, right? And and I and I certainly think one of the biggest <laughs> pieces of feedback on the game that I have seen because I you know as I track it, but I, I see quite a lot of it is oh I feel so great when I'm playing this game. <laughs> it's such a calming release from the stresses of the world. 
And, and it's quite interesting that that's not really what you, you're not like sort of secretly meditation oriented or post capitalist. You know, I want everyone to stop consuming and stop fighting. You're like, no, I just like these environments. Let's create fun environments. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, I do feel as I get, especially as I get older, I do feel a bit conscious of what are the things I'm creating, yeah. and would I enjoy those kind of things? And myself with video games, I don't. I do enjoy video games that give you something to do and that has, you know, that gives you some adrenaline and a sense of mastery. But, yeah. but, but I don't enjoy video games that take too much of your time or that like uh, place to like addiction behavior or where like games where you always have overlapping chores. So when you're done with something, you always have something else in the works that you need to start working you need to keep working on something like that i like video games that you know when you feel done you could put it down or you could yeah. wait like five minutes until you reach a checkpoint or something and then you can yeah. put it done i don't like these kind of because you know when i'm done like if, if i play something like civilization which i really used to enjoy I, I can play it for like three hours and then those three hours just disappeared and then i kind of just feel burned out in my head when i'm done with it mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of, of that, but that's also, you know, as people grow up and people of, you know, people who played video games as kids start growing, I mean, that's, we're kind of way past people like that growing up, but then there is, you know, a market for people who used to play video games that are adults and they probably do want smaller experiences, calmer experiences and nicer experiences, I would guess. Mm. I mean, I, I, I play a lot of PUBG and I, um, I love it. I love the, you know, the, the, the sense in which it kind of trains reflexes and it's just very, um, it is extremely goal oriented. I mean, there's nothing else to do other than run around and shoot people and get higher scores. Um, but um, actually when I started playing the game, I, you know, when I was just learning it, I was just literally landing on the, on the island and wandering around trying to avoid people just to explore until I got shot. <laughs> and then I kind of grew up and started shooting everybody. Um, but I do think that, I mean, just a little prediction, I am pretty sure that um, psychologists are going to start prescribing your games and or games like them in the relatively near future because it will be proven that they have a, a calming meditative effect, probably as effective as some kinds of meditation. Anyway, but um, good to know. I mean, I think... Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for commenting on that. Let's let's talk a bit about a kind of aesthetic stuff because both of these things are uh, both of your games are, um, I think, really known or you know appreciated for being extremely artistic objects. Um, maybe start with you, Greg. Are you are you? I mean, how much do, are you? I mean, you must be aware of it. You you're obviously aware of it to some extent. But how much do you feel that you're producing what is essentially an aesthetic object versus some kind of other kind of object, you know, I mean, do you, you feel that you're producing interactive art, let's put it that way? Um, I don't think about it with that, with, you know, interactive art in my head when, uh, when making it, I guess it's, but I am, yeah, definitely aware that it's a, an aesthetic experience. Um, mm -hmm. and it's an important part of the experience. And I, I think everything is there to serve, the function of the narrative that we want to tell like a lot of you know it the reason that we made the game is because we had a specific experience or story in mind to tell or to have players experience and yeah. the aesthetic is part of that experience is you know how you present it. it it also you know there's a there's a cynical functional reason for it which is that it gets people's attention um and helps you get people into the uh, mm -hmm. game but also beyond that it's also just 
part of the experience is an inherent part of it and you can't mm. you can't decouple it from that i don't think um mm. you know and, and the same goes for the music and sound effects um and even the even the kind of mind state that you bring players into it it, it influences their expectations um mm. and there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there i guess you know there's mm. uh what that says about in terms of player expectations and uh and then in terms of the aesthetics of things you've mentioned like meditation mm. or relaxation mm. or what have mm. you and the colors and the you know mm. the, those things they all have like kind of meaning imbued in them mm. by different cultures and different societies so um but i think uh yeah, it's, it's an inherent and important part of the experience that we created and the narrative we wanted to tell. Um, and that's, you know, that's the main focus for us, for sure, is is, is more the narrative. The, the stuff you were talking about, it being a relaxing experience is almost a byproduct of that. It's not an... In, and, you know, to compare it to apps um, that maybe explicitly uh, have that goal in mind, I think would be a mistake because we... We have no expertise in that regard, and this isn't something that we designed mm. with that intent. Um, mm. And so, I'd never want to try and claim claim that because I think that can also be dangerous in its own way. You try and offer people a solution to mm. something that you have no understanding of. Um, yeah. And I think you know, yeah, on a case by case basis, if that's if someone, an expert suggests, oh, you should try mm. this out, then great. Um, won't object to that at all, but uh, but you know, as a designer, I think it yeah. you take a lot of responsibility if that's what you're saying is your intent. Don't, don't worry, Greg. You, you 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 you've got you you you've now officially made a medical disclaimer. So, so you won't be blind <laughs> using medication <laughs> purposes. Yeah. No, I mean, I just wanted to be clear that, like, uh, I've had people ask it before, you know, oh, what is this a game to help people with mental health or what have you? It's like, mm, no, I don't mm. think we can solve those problems yeah. with this game it's not mm. it's not what we set out to do we set out to tell a story for quite self-indulgent reasons and we hope that people mm. like it um mm. but it's it's nothing as uh philanthropic as that i don't think on the aesthetic side um uh, oscar do you feel that um that that uh, or do you have a sense that the the outcome of the experience is is well, how much is, is the outcome aesthetic important to you for the for the users rather than yourself just doing an aesthetic product that has aesthetic features? Um, if, so it is important to me that the things that people create look beautiful. That's yeah. kind of the whole thought with the game, that uh, with Townscaper, that whatever you try and build, it's always going to look good. Yeah. And that's, I mean, a little bit, that's a marketing move because... Um, you know, then when people put up screenshots online, they all look good. Mm. It's also a bit of a, it, it's all, uh, yeah, and people get interested in it then. It's also a bit of a sort of a selfish, pretentious thing that if, you know, people see things from my product, I want those things to look good. Uh, but then it's, and then it's also the thing of, I, you know, I th think that's part of the enjoyment. People like, you know, most people aren't that artistic, but. I give them something where they can, like whatever they do, how I, however they play around with it, they get something that looks kind of good and they feel like they built the thing, even though, of course, I had a pretty big part in building it as well. 
Mm. Um, so I, th I think I'm, I'm surprised to find myself actually more of a sort of pretentious artist than Greg here, uh, where I, I do see myself as an artist quite a bit. And uh, yeah. I, to me, it's really important that the things I build look uh, good. Mm. I, I, I would agree with that. I just, um, yeah, I think it also, it just, there, there's a, a functional aspect to that as well, like a, a beyond, in terms of, what we're making and the story we're telling and uh yeah. but i don't mind being uh, a little bit pretentious about it and, and i think it's self-indulgent as well like like oscar yeah. says i think there's yeah. a like i make something to look good because i like the i like things that look good and i want that to be part of what i make um and if if that's not true then i think i would it would upset me <laughs> uh if, if i made ugly things uh it, i find it upsetting uh yeah um so for for sable um you have a kind of line art style just i mean it's a question because because it kind of pops up in in various conversations how much would you say that you were influenced by moebius i think his name is like a kind of classic french bon de dessine line art designer artist. Um, yeah i mean obviously strongly influenced uh yeah i, I mean the funny thing is um well, like we mentioned, my background is in architecture. So a lot of the yeah. work I did as, as a student even uh, was line work. It was mm -hmm. around this kind of line rendering style. So mm -hmm. even the works I was doing as a student were around that. And, and there were some early experiments with outlines and line work around uh, like the style of Wes Jones, uh, this kind of black and white line work style that had I'd been experimenting with prior to uh, starting even the thought of say would cross anyone's mind, but, um, but it kind of started, to, you know, it just became a reference point when we decided to set a game with a very stylized game, uh, stylized art style in a desert. And, um, you know, when you look at Mobius's work, the, you know, the, the strongest thing to them about them for me is, is probably the, like, the world building, the strong sense mm. of place mm. that you get mm. just by looking at a piece, the sense of there's something beyond the flat image, um, mm. and you know that that draws you draws you to them. They look great, um, but then I'd say, you know, we kind of ended up in a place where we're being influenced by uh, things that he had either influenced himself or been influenced by. So like Studio Ghibli. Mm. Uh, yeah. or Star Wars, for example, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, if you look at the June, the, I think it's in the Jodorowsky documentary on June, uh, or, well, the documentary about Jodorowsky's June, they talk about how his work on June affected the, work, the influence Lucas on Star Wars and some of the design yeah. work there. And, uh, you know, it, it becomes circular in that sense, that sort of yeah. era of sci-fi. Um, so yeah. I think his influence is inescapable uh, and mm. obviously a big part of the influence of Sable. But, um, but you know, we, we try to turn it into our own thing. And, and I think mm. um, as well, bring it back to the architecture stuff, a lot of, a lot of the influences on the project were also mm. just architectural. Like I mentioned, Wes Jones, if mm. you look at the rendering style of, his work, it, it, I think you can see some some uh, influence there, but also uh, Carlo Scarpa, uh, the Metabolists, and uh, Archigram as well. But all of those, 
you know, rendering architecture with line weights. A lot of that stuff is, mm. I mean, that's just how it's always been done, really. Um, mm. Mm. I mean, I so I I, uh, I read a lot of Tintin uh, growing up, mm. and it's just gorgeous, like line art and it, it, the first immediate reference partly because the color palette and partly just because it was the the um the line rendering is it reminds me of tinted so that was my first reference and when i checked against um, mobius i was thinking well actually you know i was thinking a lot, a lot more as exactly as you're saying is that there's obviously influences but there's a lot of additional influences coming in i see a lot of tatooine in there or not a lot but some tatooine partly because it's just a desert environment right there's lots of yeah you know, it kind of echoes and references. I also think the, the style of the of the clothing is very unique. I mean, did you did you have you done all that artwork yourself, or did you have art consultants or collaborators? You just invent all that all that out of from from your own head. Um, so some of the early stuff was just just me, um, yeah. and then we brought on uh, another artist uh, who she had Shanaz Burn, and she right. did work with me on the outfit design very basically cool. um yeah very cool. and so we collaborated on that together and that was that was really great and uh, she did a significant amount of the mpc outfits as well um yeah is any was, is any is any of it procedural whether whether the environments or the clothing or the scoot or the, what is it called the scooter no it's called what's it how do you call it a hover bike yeah hover bike, um, yeah so the outfits and the bikes they're modular so they'll built in three parts all npcs are built in three parts the the right. mask the torso and the, the legs whatever they happen to be and uh, we do the same with sable and that's how players can customize their character and the same is true for the bike the bike and this is where i talk about metabolism and archigram as an influence as well mm. it's not just an influence in terms of architecture but also in terms of thinking about how we can put together these elements of design um, mm. and even in my again it back bring it back to my architectural education in my third and second year i studied those movements a lot and took a lot of influence from them but uh but actually we did use procedural generation on the kind of natural world the the mm. terrain the dunes the mm. placement of rocks the different mm. biomes um mm. so we we used a package a unity package called map magic to generate mm. the terrain uh and then you know it's just one one kind of uh seed that we right. rely on and we bake yeah. that and then we use that as a kind of framework for building other environments on top of it as a context as a site basically so yeah. when you design a building in architecture you always have a site <laughs> you always yeah. have a context you always have yeah. a culture or material context when you make something yeah. in video games yeah. you you have infinite nothingness um yeah. which is quite a difficult uh environment to work in sometimes so yeah. so having that procedural element was really handy in in that design regard you can yeah. you know use it as a context and use it as a site but also i mean just the practical step of of having to place those rocks and even it yeah. make micro adjustments or macro adjustments um mm. being able to do that using nodes and using procedural yeah. generation was i mean for a team our size incredibly i mean it wouldn't have been viable otherwise hand placing all those rocks for, for interiors because there's a lot of um kind of temple type you know sort of um just well in interior environments kind of monumental mm -hmm. interior environments there's lots of detail in those environments is any of that like te texturing of the of the temple whatever i don't know like is that is that procedurally because it, it no. occurs to me there's just so much detail 
that's just hand drawn. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the most of, most of the textures in the game are just I drew them on the iPad and then bring them in. Right. Uh, right. I really wanted to keep that hand drawn feeling. Um, yeah. A big big part of the style of this line style is and and a pitfall that again bringing it back to architecture that, that I'd often fall into in architecture school was yeah. when I was trying to uh, like ink up a drawing it would come out almost too perfect it would come out almost too clinical and it would kill the life in a drawing so really wanted to try and introduce a, a kind of human touch to assets in the game and a big part of that was even in the 3d modeling um making sure we kind of uh wiggled the lines a little bit and make give gave them a bit more of a hand-drawn handmade feel a bit of imperfection a bit of a, mm. a kind of a thumbprint in a in a mm. digital sense um mm. which you know to duplicate an object perfectly in in digital medium is is very straightforward you know mm. you can create as many perfect objects as you want so to mm. introduce that imperfection mm. um you know we tried to do it in the 3d models and also by hand drawing textures mm. and just embracing that sort of a little bit of laziness in a sense, a little bit of looseness mm. um, that there was, we kind of attempted to, to make it feel hand drawn. So presumably you, I mean, you're not drawing every little bump. There's quite a lot of like texture mapping, right? So you, you apply a texture and then render around it appropriately. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> well, there's no tech, there's no like bump mapping or anything. Right. Uh, I guess it's just, uh, no, I mean, you know, mostly it's it's how you apply that texture. You know, you, you right. make a tileable texture and then right. it's how you kind of obfuscate that it's it's just a tileable texture. You know, okay. you create yeah, yeah, yeah. you break it up using geometry or you break right. it up using uh, decals, you know, like another texture. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. there's a bit of mud over this bit and so you can't tell that it's just a repeating pattern. But no, the majority of it is just hand drawn and then applied in UVs in the three D model. Um right. You know, yeah. I mean, so um, uh, Oscar, your work is fundamentally procedural. I mean, it's kind of elementally procedural. It you can't be done. I mean, you haven't. There's, there's, that's the essence of it. Um, how much? Um, how much would you say that your aesthetics has been constrained or enabled by your procedural method? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, sort of, kind of, mostly constrained, I guess, because, mm. like, whenever you take, you know, when you're drawing something, you get to decide with every stroke of a pen what your thing's going to look like, and you can, you, you get this kind of very intimate connection to the thing. But when you're building procedurally, you're you're trying to figure out what kind of rules things are constructed by, and then you try mm. to recreate those rules, and then you make them, you know, you make the rule, you put the rules to work, and make them make things so there's always going to be huge limits on what like you're always simplifying it and simplifying it some more and then there's always going to be certain kinds of things that those rules output mm -hmm. so there is that is always very constraining and i'm always thinking about i i always have some kind of features or shapes in every project that i wish i was able to do but that mm -hmm. that doesn't fit those kind of techniques i'm using and i'm always trying mm -hmm. to figure out new ways to kind of achieve those features and combine different techniques to kind of get the best of, mm. like some techniques are very good for organic shapes. Some techniques are very good for architectural shapes and trying to figure out, okay, but what, 
like, are there any techniques where I can combine those things, where I can get some of the nice softness of organic shape, but still have all the the, de- the specific details and the angularity of the architectural shapes. So it's, uh, I mean, I would be much more sort of aesthetically unconstrained if I was just, uh, you know, drawing on paper or stuff like that. But it's kind of, it, it doesn't tickle my brain enough to do those kind of things. I get a bit bored, mm-hmm. sort of. It, it tickles half my brain, but not the other half, and I need, I need to get both of them running. And, but then there is a thing that, that, that Greg talked about where, uh, you know, when you start drawing or creating something you have, or building a building or whatever, you have this empty canvas problem where you've just got blank something in front of you and need to figure out mm-hmm. everything from scratch. And one thing that's really fun with procedural systems is like you get to build the systems, but then the systems build all kinds of things. So mm. they build things that you didn't intend to build. And then you get new inspiration from those. And you see some things, you know, either that you want to fix or things that you want to play off more on or like, uh, yeah, um, they sort of inspire you to keep working with them. So I think especially when you work, you know, on your own by yourself, it's it's kind of like you're working with someone when you're working with a procedural algorithm. Interesting. Um, so... We'll come back to some of the tech stuff in a bit, but just in terms of the audience or um, kind of users or whatever one would call it, what is? do you have a sense of what you want them to do with it? Do you want them to play with it, pay the money, pay the money, play with it, and then kind of move on? Do you want them to become fans and build worlds and build communities and get into the whole universe of it? I mean, how do you feel that people, how do you expect and how do you want people to engage with it? To start with you, Greg. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I for me again, it's most it's quite self indulgent. Like I just want to tell a story and hope that <laughs> hope that I make enough to keep keep telling stories. Really, um, you know, and hope that we the stories resonate with people and uh, are, uh, are beautiful experiences for them. Um, there's there's no particular kind of uh, guide in my head for how the like moment to moment, like the explicit thing that people should experience with with the game. It's more just putting it, like seeing the responses as fun as it is as kind of creating the intention. Like I think that's mm-hmm. part of what makes games quite interesting is you you kind of enter a dialogue with with players as well as systems um and they also enter a dialogue with systems and the game itself um and and uh through that you as a designer um so seeing that sort of the the funnest things i think are like the unexpected results people breaking the game or doing things that you didn't expect i think if you especially with a game like ours as loose as ours as if you try to control that too much then it uh you end up very frustrated um but having said all that, the the there are like particular moments that we try to design for, um, particularly in the level design, particularly in the narrative. Um, you know, we want players to feel this or uh, have gone on this particular journey. Um, but uh, it's always in Sable, at least left quite loose and left because we can't anticipate where where a player is coming from, where, what they've done before and what they'll go on to do afterwards. Whereas I think yeah. in a more traditional narrative, you get a lot more control over those features. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, suppose, I suppose what I'm asking, right, is is in addition to, as it were, the kind of 
experience of the specific phenomena in the game. Are you expecting or do you want um, users of the game to, as it were, believe in the world of the game beyond an individual experience? And then do you want them to become a community? Right? Because if we take, if we take kind of some interest, you know, some, let's take Star Wars, for example, right? Star Wars has people that are fascinated by the Star Wars world, right? So you have the Star Wars canon, I think it's called. And then there's obviously loads of communities around it. And I just wonder if that's part of your, maybe maybe it's too much for you to expect, but is that something that you've thought about? People might believe in and be interested in the world beyond a specific game instance and might and might they then join it with other people who like it and engage with it in, in some community way? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, it's it, part of the, the design of the experience is, is we had this idea around kind of like playground rumors or playground whispers where mm-hmm. things in the game would be, we tried to keep hidden or secretive because we wanted mm. people to kind of converse about them and share them. And, mm. you know, I think that's something that's quite hard to do online now when everything mm. is so exposed and so, mm. um, so visible. Um, so we really wanted to keep some stuff to ourselves and, and let players experience that freshly and not answer mm. some questions, leave some mysteries in there because the game is ultimately about discovery. It's about mysteries. Mm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think, you know, a key part of that is making sure that, or trying to uh, hope that there there does develop a community around it and people do speculate and discuss mm. among themselves because I think that's part of the joy of an experience, right? Mm. Like it's it's almost, uh, yeah, you just leave some things unanswered and some things for players to fill in the gaps themselves. And you have to be quite conscious about that in a sense um, because I guess if you, if you don't, if you just reveal to players every aspect of your game then there's mm. you lose that you lose a bit of magic it is it is a lot of game development a lot of about games is like a magic trick and if you kind of i don't know at least in my experience if you if you expose too much of it then it loses a bit of that it loses some of the solidity to it and i think i mean that's part of why it's really hard to experience these things as a developer um with something you've made yourself because you know what the magic trick is, you know what the problems are. And so you can't, you can't see it with fresh eyes. Um, whereas when I play other people's games, I might have a vague understanding of how they've done something, or I might have, I might even have a more specific knowledge uh, and admiration for how they've done something, but it always feels more solid to me than something I've made no matter what. Um, and I think that's the same, even with drawings, even with, uh, you know, just more traditional media where uh, it feels like at least the the expression of uh, joy or enjoyment that someone makes is disproportionate to what I've created. And that's because uh, I will never get to enjoy it like that. Just, I mean, just, I mean, maybe you don't want to reveal, but currently the game is not multiplayer and it, and it doesn't have a kind of persistent environment. And otherwise I can't leave an object in the environment for somebody else to find no. through their own instance. No. Would you consider that? Uh, we did consider it, but no, oh, okay. it wasn't like a uh, <laughs> serious consideration. Just, I think technically that's very difficult, but also it wasn't it wasn't really part of the experience that we wanted to create. And right. I think it, it the amount of work versus the payoff yeah. didn't really fit in terms of what we were making. Uh, and and a lot of our game is kind of only viable with a team our size because we subtracted a lot from other what you would expect otherwise so there's no combat in the game and that was you know a, a big you know a big design intention but it was also yeah. largely in part 
because we couldn't viably do that <laughs> with our team size. Uh, yeah. Like no, design yeah, I've is often, yeah. I've often the, the best design is a product of the limitations that you have, right? Yeah. You you yeah. that like what Oscar was saying about um, the sort of things that a procedural system throws up, the dialogue that you get to have with a procedural yeah. system, it begins yeah. to to kind of create its own limitations, and then you either have to choose to break those limitations or embrace them and try and design with them. Mm. And I think mm. that's where the real design in game design yeah. starts to yeah. occur. I've actually, I just have curiosity. I've, I've looked up a number of times, like how they run, you know, multiplayer, how they, how they run all these, all these parallel, all these kind of simultaneous instances and all the, all the kind of data mechanics and rendering mechanics around um, and kind of gameplay mechanics around multiplayer simultaneous uh, you know environments like fortnite and, and pubg it's very fascinating but also it's a it's a headache in so many dimensions and it's, it's not it's not for anybody who wants to uh, but so same for you oscar i mean um do you have do you have a, an expectation and, and do you want people to interact with townscaper as it were as a world um and do you want to build a community around it in your case I will kind of follow up this question because actually some of that's happened but let's just wind it back to before the game was released would you want people to engage with it as a world and as an immersive world and would you want them to create a community around it um not really i mean it's not really an immersive world in the sense that there's nothing happening there there's no characters there it is it is kind of an aesthetic specifically and i do i mean sort of my this is kind of a, a halfway an answer to your question, but kind of one of my specific, because Townscaper is very much a comment on what I think nice looking towns and architecture looks like. So something I specifically want is I want some some young person to play it, think it looks beautiful, and then go become an architecture and architect and build some of those houses. So that's kind of specifically what I want with it. But uh, I do want people to be intrigued by it and i do want people to try and kind of figure out how it works uh and what kind of the techniques behind it are but uh but it was never it was never meant to be something that absorbs people for a very long time like i, I like my idea from the beginning was I, i'd be happy if people played it for like one hour or two hours or something like that and it's so cheap to buy on steam so they, that would kind of be enough to get their money's worth but then some people are playing it for a huge amount of time and uh uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of lovely and it's very flattering and I'm happy that's the case, but I'm also not sure not sure what kind of implications that have for how I should think about it. it it's kind of just a nice bonus the way the way I see it. Mm. I've asked you about this about 9,000 9, 9, times in 900 different ways, but basically, you know, you, you don't see a way for there to be shared assets and kind of active community around the Townscaper world. I mean, you're not saying it in so many words, but you're not actively going to facilitate that, basically. Yeah, sort of. I think, I mean, I think, tech, you know, I, if I was a better business person, that would definitely be one, <laughs> one of my goals. But I'm not really, and that's not really my focus, because then my work would go from, like, my work right now is just I make nice algorithms, I make things that look good, and I get yeah. to explore all kinds of things. Yeah. But if I was going to do something like that, then I need to, you know, hire some people, set up a team, build a back end and stuff like that. And that's not really what I want to do. So yeah. I'm happy if, you know, people want to set up their own discords and stuff and discuss townscaper things and have their Reddit, uh, yeah. subreddits or whatever. That's, you know, that's super fun for them. But uh, that's not where I want to focus my time, basically. 
Okay, well, so let's talk about um, a sort of technical extension of that, which is where are you at respectively with kind of immersive tech, whether it's AR or uh, VR or AR or any version of so-called XR? Are you f are you comfortable with that? Do you not want that? I mean, let's let's start with you, Oscar. Would you like there to be some kind of AR version of it. So you could have a kind of, you know, Apple glasses or whatever it is and have Townscaper on your kitchen table or not. Uh, yeah, I think that'd be really cool. Uh, not because it's a huge grand idea, but mostly because it's kind of, the game is pretty simple and it could be yeah. pretty easily ported to something like that. Yeah. And those kind of devices, people don't really know what to do with them anyway. And one of the few yeah. few things you can do with them is you can show them off to your friends. And then yeah. you need something that's really simple and that's fun and looks good from the beginning. And then, you know, Townscaper is a perfect fit. So I don't, I don't believe hugely in those kind of techniques. Uh, and VR and, and AR, as, at least not as like consumer things. Mm. But... Uh, but some people like them, and some people are going to have them. So I probably wouldn't design a game that was only going to be a VR game. But something mm. like Townscaper is kind of made to be small and flexible, so you can put it on mm. all kinds of different platforms. So I, th mm. I think it's a great fit for, for both those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, also in, in, in AR terms, one of the problems with AR is obviously the kind, of, the kind of user interface, right? And a lot of the AR experiences are these incredibly clumsy-looking, like, virtual screens. I mean, it's just hideous. And then you've got these kind of laser pointer things. It's just horrible. And I think that because um, Townscape is such a uniquely simple kind of interaction dynamic that you can definitely imagine people, as it were, pointing to a to a location in space to place or remove a block, right? Yeah. Um, which I think would actually be super, super, um, super delightful. Maybe even with some kind of you know haptic feedback in the form of one of those rings you can put on your finger or whatever. I mean, Greg. So, so I think one of the great things about Sable is that it is just immersive in whatever form factor you're playing it in. Would you Have you thought about VR versions of it? Uh, people have asked, but it doesn't really interest me personally. Um, I mean, mostly because I find every time I've used VR, I've felt a bit motion unwell. Um, but yeah. also, I think the type of story we're telling, just uh, I don't know that it would work. I don't know that it would be the best way to tell that story. I think if I was ever to make something for VR or AR or what have you, uh, I'd prefer to design something for that medium rather than try and uh, kind of fit a you know square peg in a round hole. Uh, and I think that's kind of what it could feel like. I don't know. I you know I'm not I'm not writing it off, and I'm not saying it would never be possible. Uh, I just have to see what it feels like, and maybe it just isn't for me. But there's still value in bringing it over to that sort of thing. But uh, on its face, I just can't see, I, I can't see how it improves that experience. <laughs> um, okay, but so let me just try so, so to separate out, maybe it's impossible, but to separate the fact that you don't like VR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you imagine why people might, I mean, I myself think, maybe I haven't played it enough, and I certainly haven't experienced very much VR stuff. And when I have experienced VR stuff, I find it really quite boring. So one of the things that makes me think that this is appropriate to VR is I would like to have a more immersive experience of it. Certainly, I would like to be in a place where the the one of the things I, I really like about Sable is the lighting design and the, mm -hmm. and the color palette, particularly as it evolves through the day. I would love to be in a more experientially complete version of that. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe, um, uh, maybe it would be, you know, 
Amazing. I'd, I, I mean, I'd have to try it myself and uh, see. I, I just haven't. I, I mean, I barely, you know, we've still got work to do on the actual uh, release that we've done. So it's not something I've considered too seriously. Um, it truly fascinates me that, that, that you are so negative about VR. <laughs> uh, great. You know, it's brilliant. Yeah, I just think uh, I've just yet to be fully, I mean, I hear there are some amazing experiences on it. Um, I just think generally I, I think you need to, I think I feel like VR in general maybe just needs to have specific experiences designed for it. Okay. Like that's okay. how I feel. Look, I will just say this to both of you, because it's very clear that you need to be told this. I think you are both too close to your own games and the and the evolutionary process of your own games to understand quite how much they've impacted people in the market. Maybe I don't know enough about games to say this authoritatively, but what I've seen and certainly what I've experienced myself is that people feel a tremendous sense of release from a whole set of expectations. And it's kind of like an unlocking of 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 just certain kind of you know, emotions and kind of, you know, expectations that I think is very interesting. I really do. Um, and the sort of one, you know, nibbling away at the community aspect and so forth. And you're both <laughs> super blase about that. <laughs> you know, I've just done this thing. <laughs> and I you probably, right. you might be right. probably if I knew a lot more about games, I'd go, oh, well, you know, it's the same old thing. We've seen this a thousand times before. But my sense of it is that it is unlocking. Certainly, I have had no interest in getting into games until those two I mean, other than, other than I kind of sneaked into first-person shooters just because it's on my mobile phone. Um, I actually don't like it very much on desktop. Um, uh, but I think these these games have made me absolutely fascinated um, by um, by the the potential of gaming, right? Um, and uh, anyway, so I just think that your user community is going to keep on knocking on your door for more immersive and community and and kind of you know idea world experiential opportunities. But anyway, yeah. it's fascinating to hear that you're both so resistant and focused. It's a, it's a lot of work, and it's as a small team. If you choose to, that's how you're going to sure. use yeah, your yeah. resources. You you know, especially when you don't explicitly have to. Um, it has to be something that you really think is going to add value. I think. I think you know, we're we're lucky enough to be in a position where our survival as a company doesn't rely on us, yeah. you know, getting a VR version of Sable out. And yeah. so, for to do it, it would have to be like a really interesting proposition. I think, and uh, yeah. maybe it would, maybe it is, maybe it is, and I just need a bit of time and a bit of rest and a bit of time away from Sable, <laughs> which I have not had for a while. Um, and I'll come back and be like, yeah, I mean, no, let's I, do I, that. I, I was kind of like turned on to this conversation because like everybody else, I sort of played Monument Valley, right, when that came out. And I remember being told, because I absolutely had no interest or no kind of knowledge of gaming at that time, that this is a new kind of game. It's just very immersive and meditative and doesn't really have a, you know, it's kind of adventure. It's not really kind of, you know, goal-oriented other than just follow the path. And um and I think that what that conversation was about is, is so much more instantiated by the work that you respectively are doing. So anyway, I find it very interesting. I mean, um, do you, I mean, I'll ask this question one more time and then I'll dump it. Do you think that gaming in society is changing its role, right? It doesn't have to be anything connected, anything to do with what we've said or your work, but do you think that how society is dealing with gaming is changing in a substantial way or not? Um, I'm pretty sure it is, but I don't know how. Uh, I play very little video games 
myself these days and I don't really keep up. I mean, that's kind of what happens, I think, when you grow up, you grow older, you get family. You kind of, like, I can't keep track of what's going on in the popular culture these days. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Mm. I think, I'm i sure think the it, kids are huge, are playing a lot of games, but I don't know what games they're playing or how yeah. they're playing it. Or, yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, in terms of it's hard to keep track exactly the ebb and flow of, of you know, when I was younger, I would be able to, keep track of that much more clearly but i think as well uh you know like uh, for example I have, n- I have no idea with with kind of more metaverse type experiences like fortnite or minecraft yeah. you know things like that that was kind of just just after i had kind of would have grown out of those experiences i think and um yeah. I, I i have no idea the kind of ebb and flow of those things socially or what have you but yeah. i'll get glimpses of it when i play you know, I played a bit of Warzone at the beginning of, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was kind of like a replacement for going to the pub with your mates or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was good fun and, and started to get a sense of, of what was going on there. But um, I also think it's like when we were younger, I think uh, there was, you, there were far fewer games and the options were far narrower and the kind of subcultures were far smaller and Mm -hmm. and far fewer and so it was maybe easier to keep track um but and even just like by telling someone you were influencing it in some way you know by by reading an article about it you were creating something but i think now it's far more fragmented it's it's you know you you can create your own kind of niche or area on social media or whatever by gathering a following, you know, a bigger following or getting people who are interested in, in what experience you want to make to, to uh, buy your stuff or engage with your stuff. And I think that's something that is completely new. I think you couldn't have really done that without going through some sort of, uh, executive gatekeeper before. Uh, and now, now you can kind of do that by yourself i mean there's still a level of of that of having to play the game but uh yeah i think it's interesting and i think it's impossible to keep track of for someone like myself at least i mean uh i i i have a feeling right i mean because i i um another one of the another one of the sort of talks in this series is about well it's actually about podcasting on architecture um, but actually it ended up becoming a conversation sort of about media evolution. And, I, and one of the things that I, I noted in that in that conversation is I do think there's a kind of damn wall between conventional media and what the and the kind of acceptable narrative of what of where the public culture is and where it actually is. And gaming has not yet broken through that wall. Right. So in terms of sheer volume of money being exchanged, it's bigger than movies which are still occupying the classic position of, you know, kind of cultural um, centerpiece of a modern technological society. And something else I noticed is that, you know, PewDiePie on YouTube, who is 111 million followers, and so it's the most uh, that any single person has in terms of YouTube followers, is essentially still a gamer. I mean, he does basically a bunch of other goofy stuff, but he, he made his following as a, you know, play along gamer. And, and still is, you know, fundamentally a gamer in terms of his, his main sensibility and interests. And it just absolutely stuns me that there isn't more presumption in the, in the mainstream of media. People are playing 
video games. You know, we, we, we cricket has primetime TV, but no one fucking watches cricket, right? I mean, it's just the most absurd thing. And basketball and, you know, Swedish TV with American football. Who fucking watches American football in Sweden? I mean, it's just absurd. And so I do think there's a moment in time, and I do think that this will kind of swing around to you guys when, you know, the big machinery of media that decides and states and kind of accelerates what society thinks it's doing is going to just absorb games, right? And there'll be live play-alongs on national TV of Sable or something, I don't know. You know I mean, I'm pretty sure that's kind of you know, <laughs> a different I mean, maybe, from... but the kids aren't watching TV anyway, are they? I mean, I don't even have a TV at home, so... Well, okay, so, okay, so there's a bit, a bit of a nuance there, which is that I think TV itself is going to merge with, with, with the new online viewing platforms. I mean, that's happening right now with... Netflix is Netflix has just done its first live event, right? It had an event across many time zones called Tudum, which is a stupid name for this for this kind of sound ident. But it was very interesting because it was basically Netflix's first experiment with saying, okay, TV, you're fucking dead. We're gonna take over now. Right? Because it doesn't do any live except for this one thing. And I think that it, there will be a number of sort of evolutionary things. Um, but to, you know, I mean, to be fair, I mean, what I, how I see is, it, is that, you know, PewDiePie is live TV. I mean, he's just a TV show. No, it's not live. He's, he's, he's daily TV, right? I mean, because that's, that's how I watch him. Oh, PewDiePie's got a new video. I'll just check in and see what goofy shit he's up to. Um, and so I do, I mean, so that's what I mean by TV is like whatever people are watching on a kind of, you know, regular basis, whether Netflix or, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but I think um, that's that's personality driven, isn't it? Like uh, Twitch or uh, YouTube or what have you. It's you know, I think watching watching four hours of a of just a video game with no commentary is is probably not what most people do. Um, even on those platforms, they watch it because there's a sort of uh, parasocial relationship there sometimes. Yeah, okay, um, personality driven. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's too narrow because I would say it's human dynamics driven, right? I don't think, I think, I think what will happen is that, so if you look at esports, right, there's tons of teams, people follow teams and there's, you know, there's star players and whatnot, but that's not quite the same dynamic as Twitch where you follow an individual and kind of keep up with their personality. It's, it's sort of the human dynamics yeah. of the, of the thing. And I think that, um, that is sort of the next evolution is that, you know, I mean, it's, it's not going to be competitive sable playing teams or whatever, but, you know, no. I think there will be community watch alongs and so forth. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe sable is the wrong example, but the point I'm making is I, I think that yeah. games are going to have a cultural moment when the wall between the mainstream media and TV and online uh, streaming and gaming is just going to come, it's going to come down, and it's going to, it's going to come down just because of the numbers, the numbers and the money. It just makes no yeah. sense that we, you know, I, I've had disagreements with people like New York Times columnists about X, Y, and Z, and the guy said, you know, who is this PewDiePie guy? Like, what the fuck, what yeah. are you on? You know, you get you know, fifteen thousand people reading your column every day. PewDiePie has two million people every evening. You know, yeah, but I guess, uh, I guess my point as well is more, is more to do with. What kind of con like I could see esports for sure in what you're talking about because yeah. that's a sort of that's what TV is built for right that sort of sporting yeah. you know that it's also to do with length of time you know mm. like how long do you watch TV yeah. yes you can sit down and watch a four hour thing but not everyone has that time and so yeah. if you can package it up in you know half an hour to two hour chunks yeah. uh, which something like esports lends itself to because yeah. it's it fits a similar format to yeah. more traditional sporting events yeah. then i could see how that would happen but also yeah. 
when you, when I say personality, sorry, then, you sorry know. to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Just, just just to remind you that both golf and cricket are all day festivals of boredom. I mean, they, sure. they have tons of. But, but those are <laughs> tradition and heritage in 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 that that format, right? And and I mean, as well, some of those are more passive experiences, watching experiences, and are, yeah. a lot of it is filled in by commentary. And, you know, the commentary around the sport, commentary on individuals, when you have 11 or 12 individuals per team, then it creates storylines. And that's what people talk about. when, when You are so resistant to becoming the next cultural phenomenon, both of you. It's fucking hilarious. I'm basically saying, <laughs> you're about to be at the center of media history. You're like, no, 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 not possible. Well, I mean, I think video games are huge and growing and ever-changing, but not really the kind of video games that we are doing, I don't think. Maybe that's true. Uh, Maybe that's yeah. true. I think I mean like I'm you know there are like live uh, concert things whatever going on in Fortnite that you know I don't know anything about those and those are huge but yeah. that's not the kind of things that I'm doing I'm yeah. doing like I I I I, much, I compare myself much more to like a you know like a, a fringe artist just doing weird yeah. things that enough people enjoy that I can live on it for sure but. Uh, you know, but it's not really mainstream culture. You, 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 you say that, but I mean, just to give you a little kind of, you know, kind of note from the frontier. I've, I mean, I've, I have no interest in TikTok, but I basically kind of created a sleeper account just to see what the hell is going on there. And I, I browse through like the live channels and I'm not joking. They are the most astonishing things you've ever seen. There's thousands of people watching channels where people are basically bouncing ping pong balls on upturned you know, overturned saucepans to get them into a shot glass and whatnot for hours on end, right? Yeah. And, 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 and so what, you know, people's interests in shared experience and just whatever the hell, it just truly has no boundary. Anyway, um, I mean, do you feel, right, let's, let's take this a bit further into sort of the, into, into more, into other sort of cultural domains that all start overlapping. Do you feel that there's an overlap with the world of film specifically? We're going to take it a bit further, but do you feel that, let's take your game, uh, Greg, because that is pretty filmic. Do you feel that you are heading in the direction of film or is it just, there's a full separation that you perceive somewhere? Um, I think there's a bit of a pitfall there where people have maybe tried to drive games into that film space before and yeah. not respected video games themselves as its its own kind of medium that has its own uh, positives and negatives and maybe stories that it's better at telling and stories that it's worse at telling, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think when you have an awareness of what those experiences are, then you can start to design around that. And, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's if you're creating, if you want to tell a narrative that is better suited for film, then maybe you should just make a film. Um, mm. And I think, but what I think is interesting about film is the production um, and how teams are built. Um, mm. And I think in, with video games, you tend to have studios of of big, you know, up to you know three thousand people in some. Well, maybe not a single studio, but you know, development teams. Um, or whereas in films, it feels like, uh, from my limited understanding, that they tend to build around projects. So they're, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to have this film. We need a director. We need a, you know, whatever actors. We need a set, set designer. And they bring bring in individuals for a project and then uh, to what suits the project. And then it, it they kind of disband at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think 
at the level of that's kind of what happened with Sable, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of how we built that, and now we're back to two people. Um, no, so I wasn't Sable for like what two weeks or something or one. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so Oscar did work on Sable exactly, mm-hmm. and in that exact same same way. And it doesn't make us a you know twelve person development studio because I think it's a misnomer if you say that. But it also doesn't make us a two person development. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're a two person mm-hmm. studio with with uh, people that we bring in. And I think so, that's so, actually so, quite... So, yeah, so in production terms, you're saying there's definitely a kind of cultural overlap, but, you, but you're not particularly saying that in terms of experiential terms, there starts to be a kind of, you know, dissolution of the boundary between the film experience and the game experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be comparisons, I mean, in large part because of the way they're presented um, and the technology they're presented on. Um, and also, I think games have strived for a long time to to reach a filmic quality, whether it's in presentation or in fidelity, um, and I think and and as well the stories they're telling. Mm. Um, but I don't think it always benefits games to focus too much on that. I think there are things that can be learned. I mean, even just mm. on a base level of like camera composition mm. and framing. Mm. You know, when you when you make a cutscene, it's good to learn from films, but mm. it doesn't mean all games should a game should necessarily be made from a uh, uh, entirely of cutscenes, you know, Pete, that's where some games have fallen apart where they try to do yeah. like quick time events or what have you. And it's kind yeah. of like a branching film narrative. And, yeah. you know, at that point, is this story better told in a film format? Is suppose, there a point? Yeah. yeah. I suppose what I'm referring to, so, so, so there's there's obviously the kind of just the plundering of IP in the form of Prince of Persia and Assassin's Creed and, you know, uh, you know, all that kind of thing that where games become some kind of filmic premise. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm really talking about is, is more like the Tintin film that um, Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg did, where basically they take the line art approach. They basically take the same style of the, of the comic strip and make a, an animated experience out of it. Can you imagine the same happening for your game? Actually, whether or not you did it yourself, can you? Could you? Would you be in favor, and or could you see people doing the same kind of thing, like creating a fully scripted narrative, like it's just completely, you know, building an entire film just out of your world? Um, from the world, yes, but I think it would be a different experience to the game. Like the world is there to to do that, but it doesn't mean. I, I think in terms, again, it's it's about context, it's about suitability, and telling the type of story that fits the medium and i think that's ultimately what what it's about i could like even the discussion we had at the beginning about being a game designer or developer or what have you um if i'm working in a diff if i have a specific story i want to tell and it doesn't suit the medium then you know maybe maybe you try something else i'm not saying i would but um i'm just saying maybe that's a better way to see ourselves as as artists i guess Mm. But you have really built a sorry, Greg. I mean, you have really built a sort of world with a with a setting, like a proper setting in Sable. So, like, it it is definitely the kind of thing where you could put a film inside of it and make a you know write a story that is specifically a film story that that would be set in that kind of world, right? Yeah, it's like for obviously, sure. ta- like Townscaper did well. Like any film that's set in like Italy or France or something is Townscaper, basically. So, so <laughs> there's no real additional need for that. 
Um, well, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you say that, Oscar, and you kind of start backing me up because because Greg keeps resisting these, these <laughs> me attempting to shunt him into this world, in this, into this opportunity of universe building. Um, uh, but in I mean, terms it's, of the, yeah, it's 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 not clear that that's something you would want because that means like sticking around in that world forever as a creator. Whereas like as a creator, you might be interested in telling different stories or creating different worlds. But yeah. uh, but but I mean, you have built a proper world and a proper setting. Well, part part of it because when you do the demo right and it just walks you through it and it's highly scripted. Part of me just wanted to sit back and see what happened. <laughs> I wanted to like, okay, well, let's just assume this person knows what they're doing and off they go, right? And I just wanted to follow. And I was like, mm, I can imagine that there's a filmic version of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, like, it's possible. It's possible. Anything's possible. But that, you know, it is possible. And I think it could be good even. I don't think, you know, it's just like Oscar says, it's about the desire to keep working in that space or whatever. I, I see it more as like a contained thing. And as a process, I enjoyed that. But now I feel like we we as a team are ready to try something new. And I think it's more it's more to do with our personal feelings there. Exhaustion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, that is the antithesis. And I think it's super refreshing to hear you say it, is the antithesis of how... Um, game studios and film studios approach their IP. They just fucking, you know, milk it and for decades to come, you know. Well, it's also the fact that the studio is made out of many different people. So, right. like, that's whereas, true. Whereas, like, only Greg and, uh, uh, oh God, what's his, what's Daniel. 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 Yeah, only Greg and Daniel make Sable. So they can't just, I'm mm. bored with this. I'm just going to hand it off to, like, some uh, yeah. junior game director and then they can make the next Sable while I go develop some new interesting IP. Yeah. So, like, you know, story, uh, studios don't get bored. It's, it's the people inside the studios sure. that get bored. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I think it's, it would be, uh, painful to ha just hand something off like that um, oh for uh, sure yeah. yeah yeah i think i think you have to really trust someone really yeah. trust someone. yeah so in terms of the of kind of broader cultural products i mean oscar i know uh, you know sort of how you feel about this but i'm just going to rehearse it one more time it's also for greg i mean in terms of people making 3d models or you know just kind of image work and kind of using that as ip to distribute putting you know creating fabrics i mean because your 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 world uh, greg is so well both of your worlds are very um appealing in in brand terms right to use the crude language are you are you interested in or comfortable with or uncomfortable with the idea that there are kind of brand spin-offs from these worlds separately from games and fully immersive experiences but just like fragments of the world so in oscar you're in your case it could be you know it could be 3d model builds in your case oscar it could be you know sort of large posters or fabrics or whatever i don't know I think I'm. Uh, to me, it, it entirely depends on if what they do looks good or not. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of weird because that's like obviously then I can't really have a policy around that where I say mm. you're allowed to make products out of Townscaper if they look beautiful and I approve <laughs> of them aesthetically, but not if they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, for for us, I think um, we'd like to do stuff like that. Um, I think it's it's fun and it's nice and if it's you know what people enjoy then I don't see why not um, but it's yeah we want to do it right and it takes time and effort and research and you know uh, we don't want to just you know 
do something really cheaply and uh, mm. in a damaging way, I think it's important mm. to just make sure that when we do it, we know what we're doing and it's considerate um, mm. and thought through. And also, mm. I mean, look, all our focus has been, just been on game development every hour mm. of every day. We just Understood, haven't had the yeah. time to think about these things. Like, yeah. We're talking a week after the games come out and, uh, uh, you know, I haven't, I, I've had one day off since then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, so there's a, there's a word that is being bandied around that covers some of these things, right? The so-called metaverse. Is that an entirely empty box for you? Are you against it? Does it have any resonance for you? What do you feel about that? Just the word and the concept around it currently, if anything. I'm a li- mostly I'm not interested in it, but also yeah. I'm a little bit again. Like I think people kind of need to live in the real world a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I'm. I'm so, says a man who's producing it. who's produced a video game for <laughs> ten hours on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Don't, but I, don't you feel I, that? Don't, isn't that ironic, right? That you're saying, yeah, yes. get out into the real world and here's my video game. Yeah, it's a bit. And maybe that's why I feel that way because I sit in okay. the all day. And then, <laughs> uh, maybe it's me that need to get out into the real world. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably a bit of that, yeah. yeah. We're all full of, uh, you know, uh, how do you say it? Like, well, not hypocrisy, but just contradiction. Yeah, yeah. we're all full of contradictions. And I mean... Uh, no, I think it's not something I particularly care for or engage with, and, and never have. And I've, I, you know, mm. uh, but I understand that just generationally, that's you know, th- there's a generation. You know, my parents never played video games, and I love video mm. games. So mm. it's just how it goes, really, and it's what you grow up with and the people you meet. And I'm sure you know it's easy to talk about these things and dismiss them from the kind of Western European cultural aspect, but. There are people in different parts of the world, in different cultures, in different places, mm-hmm. in different scenarios who, mm-hmm. you know, those things are, are, you know, ways of them learning about things or meeting people, doing things in contexts I probably couldn't imagine. And so mm-hmm. to make such a, to, to, to broadly dismiss it would be difficult, but, you know, there's always a balance with these things, you know, is, uh, to, to live to live in a metaverse would be, I think, a bit of a shame. But that's mm. my gut feeling, you know. I, mm. Yeah, I'd love I think, to learn more about I think, it. I think there's, there's two versions of, like, metaverse conversation that I think are, are kind of problematic. One is this idea of just, like, doubling, quadrupling down on on VR, right? That we're going we're gonna, to we're interact in this sort of virtual environment. And there's another version which, which actually partly overlaps with that, which is corporate domination, right? Very large corporations wanting to kind of just massively, you know, control and throttle and, you know, manage the kind of virtual experience of everybody. And obviously Facebook's included in that. Um, but I think that there's a middle ground. I mean, there's a guy called Matt Ball who I... I don't know personally, but I've kind of interacted with him a few times and I've, seen, I've read his stuff. And he, he makes a lot of sense. And the reason why I think he makes sense is because basically his approach, approach to this is the metaverse is a holding category for a universe of experiences that will blend virtual, augmented, interactive experiences in some way whether it's gaming or it's some kind of industry vertical or it's you know psychological or you know whatever it is and i and i I can i can buy that right if it's a space to which we're entering so it's like a kind of spatial internet right that's kind of how i use it that sort of makes sense to me because it's not really prescribing who wins what it's for how it works it's just saying look we're going to spatialize connected computation and i i can kind of buy that i do think that inside it 
um, uh, that we need to solve what, how it's going to work, and we need to you know deal with issues that you're talking about, Oscar, in terms of you know is this good for people? Is it better for corporations and bad for people? You know, I think, but I do think that a spatialized version of the internet is coming, and that's and I, and so I can under I can accept the use use of the word metaverse to mean that. I find it very hard if it's basically hey buy my VR shit and get on with it. You know, get, get just suck it down. Um, I also see I do see a lot of. Uh, um, like one of the things people are doing with Townscaper is exporting the models and putting them into some VR chat thing. Yeah. But I don't really know what it is. But when I Google Townscape, like when I search on Twitter for new screenshots of Townscaper, a lot of it is that that comes up. Mm. So I, I know yeah. people are already using it for that kind of stuff. But yeah, and so and so that is that I think is the map ball vision of the metaverse, right? Which is this extensible cross-domain deployment of things that were ideated or you know evolved in some other place so real world assets coming to do it, virtual domains virtual assets go into real world domains and then they band backwards and forwards and so forth and i like the fact that he doesn't make it into a you know he talks about the big companies involved but it doesn't make it into their world he doesn't say and it will be you know all driven by unreal engine or facebook's thing or whatever I think that makes sense. So it's a kind of you know a meta a meta framework horrible uh, for spatialization or and spatial spatialization of 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 spatialization of connected <laughs> economies and cultures roughly something like that. Um, so so in, in terms of monetization, which is a big piece of the metaverse, we kind of gradually move away from the metaverse as a kind of hook because I don't think we need it. Um, but Oscar, you seem to have an allergy to money. I mean, what's going on? Um, I definitely do not have an allergy to money. I just happen to have a nice amount of it now, so I don't need to prioritize it. That is an allergy to money. You just described an allergy to money. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like I'm I, I I I'm in a position where I can make a nice living, basically just doing the things I enjoy. So it wouldn't make me that much happier to earn a lot more money, but it would make me essentially less happy if I was in, like involved in projects that are not as interesting as the ones I'm yeah, doing now. No, so, nobody becomes an indie game developer because they are really in, into money, I guess. Yeah. Though, honestly, there is money to be made. Potentially, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, because the way you described it to me once before, you just said, I, did, I wouldn't know what to do with a lot more money other than buying another apartment, which I don't need. And for me, that is yeah. just I, kind I need of a slightly a bigger bit money. apartment. Yeah, <laughs> I do need a slightly bigger apartment. But I, I, I kind of do have the budget for that now. I just need to figure out which one is. Well, I mean, let me put it in a slightly more pointed terms, and then I'll, and then I'll apply the same question to you, Greg. I mean... Um, Part of me just wants to ask how much money is enough because I'm actually really curious about what you think about that. But it's not really for this for this talk series. Um, maybe for the other talk series I do on like sustainable um, design and so forth. But uh, this one, it, the question I guess is, do you feel? I mean, it's kind of sub questions here, but but you what? So the, the monetization route for for um, Townscaper right now is that basically I buy a, a permanent license to it, and basically I buy a copy of it on steam right or whatever platform I'm, I'm you know buying through and the platform takes a cut are you just happy being that with that being the monetization monetization model or do you want to start capturing ip revenues or you know or, or in-game revenues or because it's, it's kind of old-fashioned it's, it's almost the equivalent to download you know sort of old box software pay your money and then that's it 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty happy with that because it doesn't like all I need to focus on then is make a nice appealing product. I don't yeah. need to focus on pulling people in with retention system and making them spend more money than they're currently spending and stuff like that. It makes it kind of kid friendly as well because then mm. the parent can just you know a parent can just pay for yeah, it and then yeah. hand it to the kid and they don't feel like the game is constantly trying to make the kid buy more things in it. Yeah. So I, I really like that model. I think mm. the other kind of models are, you know, most the kind of necessary where this model doesn't work, but, but it does work here. So mm. I'm, I'm just really happy it works. I mean, in the, in the Chinese knockoffs, I, 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 only, I only looked at one of them. One of the Chinese knockoffs of your game, Oscar, uh, the, one of the most noticeable things was you have to pay for different colors, and then yeah. you have a, a kind of casino roulette spin <laughs> to, to get extra points or whatever. It's like, culturally, this is very far from the original game. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Greg? Because because in your game it would be very easy to pay for skins, very similar to like I don't know Fortnite or PUBG or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's not really part of. I think it's about transparency as well, right? Like yeah. uh, you can obfuscate and create kind of economies in your own system, and that 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 take advantage of and and mm. uh, hope that people will spend real money, mm. um, but that's not really what. Is you know it doesn't it doesn't contribute to the experience that we're trying to create, and um, we don't need to do it to survive. So mm. I don't feel like it's necessary, like uh, to to just be honest and upfront about okay, this is what you're going to pay for, and this is what you're going to get is yeah. important. And I think uh, you know it's it's straightforward and maybe unsustainable, uh, but it's it's kind of my preference and i think as well like you know if you think about different demographics like yeah you could make maybe maybe you could make sable free and sell skins and bike parts and what have you and maybe you even get more money for it but it's uh i don't know i think it's just about having an honest dialogue with with someone buying the game and saying look this is what it costs and that's what you're going to get and it's that simple yeah i remember having a conversation with a uh, with a very prominent Silicon Valley investor who, uh, you know, he's come up through the game, game industry and was basically advising a bunch of game companies on their pricing strategy. And I said, I didn't buy X, you know, a specific game. I didn't download a specific game. I didn't, didn't use it very much. And he said, why? And I said, well, because, you know, I don't want to pay this fee and that fee. He said, you know, you're just a cheapskate. And I said, and I just sort of sat there because I was a bit surprised. And actually what, I, what I've what i felt since then is actually, no, if you charged me three times more and never fucking asked me for money again, I would have loved it, right? Yeah. And it is one of the things I love about, you know, um, your approach to the market, which is we have made a product. Please buy our product. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's yeah. like it, this it really endless pestering yeah. of people for more shit is, I think, psychological. I definitely think, right, back to the sort of, you know, psychology aspect of this, um, that encouraging kids to become reflexive gamblers is terrifying. It's awful. Yeah. And I do think that part of the NFT craze is basically, I, I actually think that part of society is just like train itself to think, you know, oh, I'm going to do my NFT drop and I'm going to do all this kind of weird language around fucking pumping and dumping your own assets. It's just bizarre. Anyway. I think it's desperation as well. People yeah. see it as an opportunity to escape a circumstance or get out of a job or whatever, you know, they, so to, you know, went specifically with, with that stuff, but also, um, 
But I think as well, when when you ask someone to just buy a game, then they are maybe more engaged with it. They mm. give it value, mm. and then when they when they load it up and they play it, they they value it. It's the same thing as being sometimes if someone pays you to do something they're almost more grateful for the work that you do for them mm. than if you do it for free for them uh mm. sometimes they for some reason i feel like there's a psychological thing going on there where people they don't they're not showing that they value it and so if you ask them can you value this please and they choose not to then that's fine they don't get it whereas uh whereas if you're not asking people to value it up front then maybe they're going to give it less respect or less time or treat it as a throwaway thing or not come into it with yeah. with that feeling. And I think that's really important. Um, I do yeah. think I mean I do I do think that's part of the strategy. It's not quite the same point, but it's related to how Apple, or at least Steve Jobs originally described what he thought he was doing with Apple products, right? People say, oh, you know, well, you're taking choice away. And he says, what do you think people are paying us for? Why do you think people are paying premiums for these phones? except to take away choices they do not want. They trust us to give them things that are valuable, and then that's it. And I, I just felt that he was pretty defensive on that in a way that is a sort of kind of being eroded bit by bit, even inside Apple. But I think Apple's going to come back to that position, which is we are being paid to curate an experience for you. Thank you. Goodbye. And and there's something about that. It's a different thing in, 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 in your approach to pricing and, and kind of product, which is, yeah, here you go, pay money for this thing, and we're all good, right? I don't need to kind of keep begging you and bothering you to kind of, you know, rethink what you think you're getting out of this. Yeah, because then also, I mean, then you have a kind of antagonistic uh, relation to the game when you're playing it, because you feel like you always have to be on guard because the game's always trying to come for your wallet, kind of. Mm. And that's that's just not a very nice experience. And also, and also with a game, I feel like, with a, like more of a proper game than maybe Table and Townscape, the fun yeah. part is like trying to learn the rules and trying to beat the rules and become mm. good within the rules of that game. Mm. But if you then can just pay down money to change the rules of the game or mm. to give you an edge, I mean, it kind of ruins the purpose of, of, of kind of evaluating your skill in a bit. Mm. But I'd like to bring something else up, which, sort of in regards to the NFT craze and how I think... Actually, some, something that video game developers don't really realize is how privileged we are to work in an industry where we actually can have proper jobs and make decent money, at least, uh, making art, basically, making artistic mm. things. I mean, that's for most kind of artists that aren't working in video games. It, it's an incredibly volatile market. You never know what your next paycheck is going to come from. And you're always chasing, like, small gigs. And I mean, there, there isn't really a functioning you know, art market for kind of decent artists. I mean, there is for like super high art and stuff like that. But, um, you know, all these kind of like uh, gra graphic designers that exist in the millions, there aren't really stable jobs for those kind of people. So I, I think video game is a lovely place to work in because you, you get to do art and yeah, you get to do some other boring stuff as well. And you can like, you know, get paid. Yeah. I, I do think, I do think that um, maybe, uh, well, I'm, I'm certain that you don't realize the extent to which both in terms of the experience of the game and the pricing, I mean, to use the language, the monetization strategy of the game, but also the price point actually could say well, because, um, because uh, Townscaper is very cheap, um, that you are representing, <laughs> I don't want to use, I, mean, I avoid this kind of language, but, the, but, but a post-capitalistic or a post-consumeristic or a post-accumulative 
society are essentially saying, I produce nice, beautiful things. Here's a price. Do you want it? If you buy it, you get it. And um, no, you don't need to kind of run around shooting people, accumulating things, fighting, screaming, doing what you do at work, basically. It's a bit more meditative and kind of, you know, um, sort of decoupling from the rat race than that. And I think there's something in it, which is um, whether or not it's going to explicitly what's driven you. I do think that that's how people will appreciate it. It's certainly how I appreciate it, right? You know, I um, the so I was always super impressed by the Apple App Store and how it just kind of galvanized developers and, you know, there's tons of innovation and, you know, I'm, you know, um, uh, just all sorts of interesting ways of experiencing, you know, new game mechanics like physics engines and so forth that weren't really, well, certainly weren't except, but just didn't exist on the mobile form factor before. And that was all very exciting. But what I think has happened now is that the entirety of the, the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store are just saturated in the most abysmal shit. It is impossible to find good things. Right, there are millions and millions of things in there, and I would say a solid 85% of it is absolutely worthless. And part of that is this obsession with these weird monetization strategies. We're going to produce a shit game. We're going to induce you to watch advert, adverts. If you want to get rid of the adverts, we're going to make you pay this kind of you know, breadcrumb trail of payments. And I'm like, where did the idea that we were just going to produce quality items, curate them, and sell them go? Um, I do think people want to go back in that direction. I mean, I basically, you know, just in general terms, I think the curation is going to be one of the biggest phenomena in human progress in the coming couple of decades because we're just overwhelmed with shit and we cannot navigate it. We just can't. Um, and so for you to have created a very curated experience for a very um, clean financial um, uh, interface is, I think, it's, it, I think it marks some some kind of transition. And the fact that you're so relaxed about it, and well, you know, I didn't, you know, I'm, I've got no ideology here, is even more fascinating to me. I think it is ideological. It's just, uh, it's just against that stuff, I guess. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, we we have to survive as game developers, but yeah. you know, we want to do it in a way that is. Uh, as ethical as we can and yeah. it feels some of that feels unethical i mean look i'm not here to say to condemn or say all of that stuff you know it's contextual but but for me for our what we're making for the experience we want it wouldn't be right it wouldn't be right do you feel that do you feel that game development is is do you feel that game developers like you are growing in volume are there more developers that say, oh, I, don't need, I don't need to kind of do, use these kind of pricing mechanics to kind of induce, you know, in-app payments over time or what? There, there, are, load, there, are, there, are, there are so many game developers who are trying to do this sort of thing, but it's just yeah. not that financially viable. It's not, yeah. and most games do not sell like anywhere near enough to maintain, to, to keep going, uh, you know. You could spend however long on a game, sell it at a set price, uh, but the market, the way that algorithms work in terms of promoting games, yeah. um, doesn't necessarily make that stuff viable. And and then now instead you have to make a game as a service continuously. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it's a whole kettle of fish there that you have to get involved with, even if you don't necessarily want to. And it's for survival purposes for most mm. developers, not everyone, but mm. I think there are there are so many developers out there trying to do the same mm. stuff because that's what we grew up on anyway. And I think that's what we want to, you know, we, when when I used to buy games, it was just a, you know, to not sound like back in my day too much, but you know, when, when we'd buy games, it was just what you paid and that was it. Like you wouldn't, mm. there wasn't much more to it. Um, but, uh, 
but now it's fragmented and become a different beast and and mm. it's tough to compete but then as indie developers you have to do stuff a bit differently to compete as well um, yeah. because even if you try to make a game as a service game as whatever um then you're saying okay i'm going to compete with with these mega corporations and mm. who are doing it infinitely better data driven you know like as a science yeah. so what's the point in that what's the point in that you're not going to survive either so mm. it's, it is a lot of it is luck of the draw um mm. and hoping you get attention or someone will fund you and they'll help you get attention yeah you know. That's well, it's, it part, it's, it's partly luck of the draw, but it's also that the, the, the respective games that you've created are staggeringly detail-oriented. I mean, you have created very, very, very high-quality artistic experiences, right? You have not faked that. I mean, it's, as far as I know, Greg, you've gone, you went from like a two-year build to like a four-and-a-half-year build or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, I mean, okay. it started off as six months and then, and right. then two yeah. years and then, yeah. yeah. But so, 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 so part of the reason for that is you want to produce something that's actually good, right? So I don't think it's one hundred percent luck of the draw because you could have pumped something out a long time ago just to kind of get your money back. Yeah, I mean, well, we wouldn't have got our money back with that first one anyway. <laughs> right. um, but also, you know, we got funding. That was the difference, and that's why the ambitions grew. And then, okay, now we have a Game Pass deal. Okay, now we can make something a bit bigger and, and scale yeah. the team up and you know, take our time a little bit more with it and try and make it better. And that's, you know, that was because of the security that we had from that rather than okay. Interesting. Um, rather than uh, something we knew we could do from the beginning. I mean, what that meant on the production side was that we started running a 200-meter race and ended up running an 800-meter. But um, yeah. so the pacing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're planning for one and end up running the other yeah. is difficult. But, um, but that was because we had that financial reassurance. And if we didn't have that, we so wouldn't so, so, so make a different the, decision. So Game Pass financing is all via, uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called, Steam? Uh, Xbox. Microsoft. Xbox, yeah. Um, and so um, are you happy, respectively, giving and receiving money from large financial, like, institutions where do you find where are you because you you're talking about the ethics of it which i appreciate but you yeah. are still beholden for your for your monetization to these very large platforms we're not really beholden to them though because there's no the conditions aren't i mean i don't know how much i can talk about it but you know there was no mandate to release a specific type of game it was just release yeah. a game called sable that was ah, it. No, okay so in this case i mean i mean that your distribution is through steam right uh, and yes, and Xbox. We're exclusive right. on console to Xbox yeah. at launch. Yeah. At launch, yeah. I don't. I don't mind that kind of stuff at all. I think they provide a valuable service as, the, yeah. as a good platform where people can find my game. And uh, yeah. you know, would I like them to take a slightly smaller cut so I can have a bigger cut? Yeah, maybe. But you know, like. Yeah, so I you am do want a to... bigger apartment. You rely yeah, yeah, on yeah. many apartments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so, I, you know, I yes, I'm beholden to Steam as a platform, but I'm also beholden to you know my bank and the various yeah. payment companies involved. So sure. I, I don't mind that. I think I think they're mostly doing a good job, and it is kind of a you know they provide a platform, and if, if they had a if if I had to work with. A, partner like that who had a bunch of opinions of what kind of product I, I, I um, you know I should make then then I 
then I wouldn't be happy about it. But but mm. I, I think it's just it's just a good platform, basically. Mm. Okay, so just a couple more questions before just to, just to round off. I mean, I might have to kind of probe and push a little bit to get an answer on this. But do you feel that you have a message for society, right? And I'll start with you, Oscar, because. And I mean, you're very good at being modest and avoiding answering these kinds of things directly. And I really appreciate that. But actually, you're quite robust in your belief about what good design is. Right? And you have let slip that you would quite like the kids learn how to design, <laughs> at least aesthetically, through your work. And so how much would you do you really see that as a message for society about design? Or is it just a kind of private, you know, sort of narrative and you're not really concerned? No, I, I do see that as a message. I, I enjoy beautiful architecture and beautiful aesthetics, and mm -hmm. I really do want to influence people to. I want to offer up offer up my my ideal and my aesthetics to people, and I would love mm -hmm. if they would like it and and you know be inspired by it and produce similar things. But I think I think kind of my uh, approach to art. I I like art in. Uh, together with crafts so i think video games is a great place as it are films and other things where you get to have to get to have make an artistic expression you also have to be good at your craft and just produce a nice entertaining thing and then you can mm -hmm. also have your your uh, artistic message or idealistic mm -hmm. message on top of that preferably mm -hmm. somewhat subtly uh, included mm -hmm. in that so like if you just make something sort of out of ideology or yeah or really out of only like an artistic thing it's probably going to be quite preachy or quite boring but if you make something that's if you make something that that's Fun and entertaining as it is, you also get yeah. to sneak in some some well, artistry and some pretentiousness into it. Yeah, because what you're describing, right, is architecture Twitter. Architecture Twitter is the most depressing space where everyone's just criticizing styles, but actually there isn't really a lot of opportunity to kind of you know explore new things. Um, uh, do you would you say? I'm gonna, so you're at some point you're just going to stop answering. But would you say that uh, that modern architecture is generally speaking bad? I mean, where are you at with it? I think so. Yeah, mostly. Um, okay. I think, but, and I don't exactly know why. I try to understand why. And I, since I don't really have that much insight to it, I also don't want to offer sort of two, I mean, I have my theories and ideas, but I don't have any idea how kind of solid they are. I mean, yeah. all arts have, especially fine arts, have gone in a very strange direction. I think mostly in kind of post-war um, yeah the Western world. And part of that is, you know, the classical explanation people were kind of appalled with Western civilization after the war. So they wanted mm -hmm. to kind of discard um, the aesthetics that were considered beautiful of, mm -hmm. you know, that were part of the old world that created those wars. Mm -hmm. You know, that's probably part of it. Also part of it is as development speeds up, uh, you get new materials and new things to work with, and you kind of don't have the time to integrate them aesthetically into the old things because everything's moving so fast. There's also, of course, the aspect of, you know, labor's getting more uh, expensive, so you construct buildings with much fewer people involved in them, and then, you know, yeah, you've got to rely more on prefabs and uh, stuff like that. You're not going to have a hand, like uh, some craftsman uh, carving out every single, you know, stone that's going into your building. So there's, I believe there are real challenges there, and I don't know what uh, what the solutions to any of these things are. But uh, I just think that, well, I know that I don't like what most new buildings that are put up these days look like. So what I can do is at least offer up things that I think look good, and then you know, if it's possible, maybe people can get inspired by it. 
Would you, would you say you're a stylistic conservative or, or would you reject that? I probably am in some respects, um, but not, yeah, I think I, I think I kind of land in that camp in a way. I think I, I enjoy the kind of melody and repetition of, a, of most of uh, uh, traditional architecture where things are kind of, you know, things are symmetrical, things are repeating, mm. but, but like in a playful way. Uh, so, you know, the, the one row of buildings might be, a, or one row of windows might be a, a repetition with a twist of the, the mm. row of windows below and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I, think, I think that's what good music sounds like as well. It's, it's repetition, but then there's, there's twist and there's change to it. Um, yeah. And yeah, so a bit, but I, I'm, I'm sure you could explore, I mean, you know, architecture before the world wars kept evolving and changing as well. Art Nouveau is, you know, quite different from medieval architecture, but mm -hmm. I think there are some core elements to, to both of them that are really nice and that are also similar to traditional architecture throughout the world. So I think there's a, I, th I think there's a lot of potential variation there that is nice and some of it is traditional and I'm sure you could come up with those kind of nice looking things with, with new materials and new ways of building as well. Um, but you need some of the kind of aesthetic theory behind it. Uh, I, think. I think I think that I mean so just there's a little kind of sort of comma to what you're saying I, I mean I am I love modern architecture I think it's very interesting I mean certainly in the sense of like Corbusier and like the the kind of as with the classical modernists but I think that um, for architecture to to be stable in stylistic terms in society it needs to at least two things one is basically some kind of conversation not just with its environment but with its history right if there is no conversation if it doesn't echo or rhyme or engage as you say musically with with what's going on before it and around it there will be some kind of you know sort of discordance or cognitive clash but it needs to engage with itself right it has to have a conversation with itself and i think that's part of the um part of the issue about symmetry and i think a lot of a lot of modern architecture for some reason doesn't want to do those things quite apart from what it might contribute stylistically and i and so i, I very much appreciate those 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 points i mean greg would you say that um because I'm going to come back to you, I was going to a little bit with about some, uh, some other messaging issues, but maybe it's just going to repeat what we've said before. But just in terms of style, Greg, are you, mm. is there any messaging in your work about what is beautiful and or is it just you just chosen what you like? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I like architecture that has ideas behind it, right? That uh, So like, you know, like the brutalist or modernist, yeah. uh, metabolist, archigram, um, yeah. Anyone like that? Anyone, you know, when I when I was researching for Sable, I, I traveled to Arcosanti and visited, <laughs> nice. a, you know, where where uh, Soleri was exploring ideas of arcology and developing ideas of arcology. And I mean, Arcosanti in American city, American architecture terms, is actually very kind of has a very, I wouldn't say European, but old old country feel. You know, like a feeling that of of urbanism that you get from older uh, urban design which is quite narrow narrow areas and twists and turns and sight lines and hidden obfuscated views and i mean uh, when you compare that to say an american city you get these you know they're designed for cars they're for the most part you know very straight roads you can't really right. get lost you can't uh, and the scale is not is not really human uh, you yeah. know, and there's there's something fascinating about that, but um, 
but you know, I, I like the I like architecture that has ideas, and I think it goes. You know, I do like the aesthetics of modern architecture. You know, the Barbican is one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture I think that you can get, but yeah. uh, it has to be maintained. You can't just let it rot. You can't just let it sit there and fall apart. You know, with as with any piece of architecture, if 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 you let that happen, then it's going to end up decrepit. Look at um, the Nakagin Capsule Tower in Japan. You know, they yeah. they want to, or they have, or they're about to tear that down. Um, and really, that should be retained as a piece of architectural history. You know, explored an idea, explored something that maybe it didn't quite come off as a concept, yeah. but it was this yeah. idea of post-war housing, post-war urbanism that could kind of uh, help Japan recover from the damage that had been inflicted on it. Mm. Um, and I mean, Japan's quite an interesting place architecturally anyway, because there's always this kind of idea of renewal and mm. rebuilding that's occurring mm. there. But mm. And so it fed into that using a kind of, uh, you know, modern modernist ideas, but tied into like the locality by pulling upon like kind of modularity yeah. and this idea, yeah. like I said, of rebuilding and renewal, but that never yeah. happened. It doesn't yeah. mean that those are things that we should discard or get rid of or are yeah. not beautiful in their own right. I mean, yeah. some people don't like them, but I think the variety and the exploration there is fascinating. Um, but do, does, would you say that, would you say that Sable is part, are you, are you, are you positioning Sable as part of the conversation, right? Cause Oscar is basically saying, explicitly i'm happy that he says it explicitly you know that, that although it's very fun um and it's sort of you know it's art concealing art as they say but i mean it, it is a statement of intent about you know um about what style architectural style can be would you say the same is true for sable i think um it's complicated it's it's hard to answer that explicitly because it's about context. It's always right. about context for me, and there's no context particularly exactly like that of Sable. We don't have right. hoverbikes in our world. We don't have these giant fallen ships in our world. Yeah. So, but having said all that, I do really think that cities and urbanism should challenge us, should challenge people. And I don't, I don't mean that we should have to parkour our way around a city you know they should be accessible and available to people who need to get around them every day but i think that i think there's a joy and a pleasure to having kind of like hidden little alleyways or yeah. uh, corners that create exciting moments and yeah like uh, I, th I think that's what i tried to do a bit with ecria the the city in table i tried to create a city that felt bigger than it was and told a story about the you know it it tells a story about urban living in the desert environment you know i made the streets a certain width i had squares that open up to create where uh to create kind of wind tunnels and shade and uh points of inhabitation and i think um you know if you look i what i really like about that city is it's not it's it it's not for vehicular transport. There are some bikes on the streets and stuff like that. But, mm. uh, you know, if you look at Soho now, they've just uh, got rid of the pedestrianization of Soho, which was introduced during uh, the kind of coronavirus. Yeah. And, you know, that's such a shame. Cities should be designed for people. And I think that is something that I tried to express a bit in Sable. Okay. Um, but also Sable is kind of exploring the idea that 
um, you know, progress isn't linear, but also that progress isn't explicit. It's not living in a city isn't more uh, inherently progressive than living in a tent and in living a nomadic lifestyle. It was kind of exploring this idea of different ways of living in different environments and different suitabilities. And I think that that was something that we did try to explore in this game. I mean, so that comes to the last question because we'll round off with this. I mean, because um, uh, I can hear that you have a, a game player or a toy player in your near environment, Oscar, um, who, who wants attention. I yes. Mean, uh, <laughs> uh, what um, uh, do you think? I'm trying to make this binary, but you will, you will unpack the binary if it makes sense. Should society see your games, right, as escapes from all the problems of the world or solace, um, escape and solace from the world or inspirations to come back into the world? Maybe that's kind of fake binary, but you get the point, right? Is it escapism or is it somehow enabling and inspiring people to re-engage in the world? Maybe that's, yeah, tear, tear that question down. Start with you, Oscar. Uh, I'm, it's, it's both, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, because I want them to, you know, escape and chill out and, you know, meditate a bit when they're playing. But then I want them to go out into the world and do something nice and productive. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, you need both those things. You can't have people being, you know, escape all the time. You can't have mm. people working all the time. So, mm. yeah. And I mean, good, good media of any kind, of course, leaves some kind of lasting impression that people can bring into their lives afterwards as well. Do you think about that balance, Greg? Yeah, I think uh, I always want people to ask questions about who they are, where they live, what they do, what they see, um, and the people around them too, and just society in general. I think I think that is something that we try to do with the game. Um, and it's not just purely a meditative, relaxing experience because, you know, we have this narrative, we have characters that you... Uh, you encounter who have their own problems in this world that, you know, we try to design it and have characters in the world that are slightly irreverent and, and mm. don't, you know, they live in that world. And I think mm. if you have every character just thinks this is some u utopian society and everything is perfect or mm. whatever, it's just hero, hero saves the world. That's not mm. one very interesting and two doesn't explore mm. ideas that kind of align with mm. our philosophy in general. Um, yeah. yeah, I do think that your games are respectively are probably more inspiring to people wanting to engage with or get into art and design and technology than a lot of things currently in art, design and technology, quite apart from actually, you know, the, the kind of you know, the, the, the immersiveness and the fun of the environment itself. I just think that they're inspiring kind of pedagogic um experiences and the you know the gen the gentleness with which you you know, engage with those themes you know what, what an environment could be and how you might think about the real world and how you might think about design is i think a great gift it is not you know ideological and i'm you know i'm sort of fascinated by how gently you've you've broached those things okay this has been so fantastic so interesting so delighted that this that your work is in the world Thanks so much, and um, let's let's. I, 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 everyone wants to see more of it as it as whenever you're rested and ready to do more. Both of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 really I'm really excited that we got a little bit into sort of uh, architecture and aesthetics at the at the end here. That's that's because obviously Greg is someone whose artistic output I respect very very much, and it would be super 
and I don't have any kind of architectural education myself, so that's definitely like a topic where Greg and I probably probably have some some disagreements and some agreements, and it'd be very interesting to kind of to discuss with Greg further further. Well, so on, so on that point, I mean, because Greg, you you may not know this, but the previous conversation that Oscar joined on this in this talk series kind of touched on these issues a bit, right? We were talking about digital digital tools for architecture, but more particularly about architectural style is a conversation that I've kind of avoided, but now you're inspiring to get into it. I mean, it's one thing that I try to avoid because it gets toxic very fast. gets super boring. And one of the reasons I really enjoy speaking to Oscar is that he is incredibly restrained with his critiques. I find it's maybe because he's just working very hard on his products, but it's why I just I've muted ninety percent of architecture Twitter because it's just so absurd. But the, the the specific thing that I think is interesting, and I, this is part of the conversation we had on the previous talk with Oscar, and it's something that I've chatted about Oscar with sort of separately, is that where um, architectural tool sets, te technological tool sets are going, I do think is towards what Townscaper does, which is essentially saying, we're going to give you a complete design. You will not be fiddling with parametric switches, except to a very limited degree. We are going to constrain this inside the, inside the uh, under the hood, as it were. And if you don't like it, choose another one, right? And I think that will help a lot because I do think that one of the things that has, you know, to bring two points together, I do think that people are saying, why don't we have more aesthetically pleasing environments is going to come together a little bit with, oh, well, we can design in modular terms, which create much more efficient, much more sustainable, much more cost effective, you know, cost effective housing and buildings. Well, what tools would we have that bring those two things together? More stylistic control and more cost control and more quality control. I think something is in that in that intersection, but um, I would love to have the conversation. Um, and so let's park this one here and, and, and have another one specifically on that. Oscar, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be, hopefully there'll be an opportunity where I get you in front of architects with stylistic ideologies and we, we, we battle it out, all right? Uh, I'm not sure I'm in the battling mood, but it would be definitely interesting to I'm, hear their, I'm, their perspectives. I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but the point is it's very hard to get out of the battling mode because that tends to be how style conversations are take place, um, take place, but we'll work it out. Anyway, yeah. thanks so much. And it's great to park it there because it's clear that there's more to, there's more to explore. Thanks both of you. All Cheers. right. Thank you. Thank you for having us.